Hello everyone, and welcome to Canada Rinse Sound of Play 206. Thank you. 
Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 206. You've already heard a little bit of his work here. It is uh, Mr. David Peacock. Hi, how's it going? Hey, hey. So you are an... Well, let me get the... See if I have the term right. Is an arranger. Does that... Does that encompass everything or, or is there a crossover with composer or those completely different job titles? I want to make sure I'm giving you the proper introduction here. Uh, in uh, hmm. arranger is one of the hats I wear. Uh, <laughs> I do orchestration, which is different as well. And a bit of composition sometimes in the job of arranging, it requires additional material to be written. Sometimes a composer, as we all know, is just writing original music for something. Um, but yeah, I do a few different things. Arranging is is definitely one of them. Cool. Well, why don't you kind of uh, take us through some of the kind of big, exciting things that you've done, some of the things that you're, uh, some of the feathers in your hat to just kind of give the audience a quick introduction to who you are as a person and as a professional being. <laughs> I have been interested in music since I was about four years old and became fascinated with pianos and just tried to figure out what that was all about. I have been working as an arranger, both on the fan side of video games and both on the professional side as well. I've also done some orchestration work in the last few years for various projects, some of which is about translating the game music to an acoustic setting or a live concert performance. Um, sometimes it's just about creating the uh, sheet music that the studio musicians will play for the soundtrack. Yeah, that's a good uh, general idea of what I've been doing. That's cool. It's a very diverse skill set there and the, a lot of different experiences that sound like a lot of fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. We'll get into more of the specifics later, but, uh, you know, while it's still kind of fresh in our minds, I wanted to go back to that opening piece that we played on the way in here. This is an arrangement that uh, you made of a piece from Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, why don't you kind of introduce that piece that we heard already and kind of give us some background as to uh, uh, why this one was one that you wanted to highlight? Uh, that was a fun arrangement and uh, one of the few pieces I've done from uh, composer Hitoshi Sakimoto. And I just, I loved Final Fantasy Tactics when it came out and it was a project uh, I got to contribute to an album called Zodiac, which was released by Materia Collective. And they released an entire album of Final Fantasy Tactics covers and arranger, uh, arrangements. I did a chamber arrangement of this piece, uh, got a few friends to record all of the instruments that you can hear and uh, put it together. And that was just a very special piece that I, I thought would be a great opener. Well, cool. so not to uh, get ahead of things, but I notice in the track list that you've selected for this sound of play, there's a lot of um, a lot of Japanese stuff, a lot of RPG type of stuff. Um, does this reflect your uh, gameplay preferences as well? Or is this just the kind of music that really speaks to you? Uh, it would be both. I find myself... I grew up with uh, Super Nintendo era RPGs, PlayStation 1 era RPGs primarily, and so they definitely hold a special a special place in my heart. I'd say I still play them now, but maybe to a lesser degree uh, with the time available. Uh, I don't really have 60 to 100 hours all the time to sink into one game. 
so that is definitely a passion of mine. And with the, of course, the re-release of all of classic games that have been coming out lately with newer features to make the gameplay a bit faster, I've definitely gotten a chance to dive in a bit more. But yeah, I definitely love that style of gaming. And as a as a person who likes to play games, but maybe isn't very good at games, I wouldn't be one that you would want to play an online shooting game with because mm-hmm. I would just be useless pretty much. Um, things like that. I'm not great at. I struggled to get through Hyperlight Drifter. I have Hollow Knight and I've tried to get uh, I don't know if I'm going to ever beat it, but I'm going to try. Um so yeah, so I'm one of those gamers that loves games but knows that I'm terrible at them. So anything like a that gives me a, a window of time to think about it is pretty uh, uh appreciated. Yeah, yeah, I understand that definitely. Um so each of these uh each of the the pieces of music that you choose, at least in your fan work, to um, to rearrange to to contribute to, um, are these all pieces that you have kind of a, a connection to originally from the games, or do you ever hear a piece of music and are kind of inspired outside of the context of playing the game, or are kind of conscript, conscripted into a project um, featuring music from games that you haven't played before? Like, is it always coming from a place of fandom at the beginning? Not always. No, actually, it's Final Fantasy Tactics is um, going through the list again. A lot of a lot of Undertale stuff I had to learn about a bit after the fact uh, or when I knew I'd be working on it. I did a little bit more research when it came to stuff with the Fez work. Also, that was a game that I had a little Mm. bit of experience with, but I hadn't fully played through. Um, I love that experience with game uh, music as well is that getting the chance to explore a game because I know I'm going to be reinterpreting the music is a fun way to look at it and to think about options and how to bring the story uh, alive from just the music. Okay, so yeah, there are are a lot of occasions where I want to arrange a piece because I have a particular childhood connection to it or I just like the composer or the game. Um, And then there's a mixture of things where I am hired to do an arrangement or some work from a game where I haven't been as familiar with it as games that I grew up playing for for decades. And so I'll have to go in and learn about the game and the narrative while I'm also listening to the music and thinking about ideas for how to make it fit the scenario that we're going for. In my case, I like to also make sure that I remember that I not to be afraid of taking creative liberties and and weaving in different themes and to not treat the material as too precious and um yeah so it's it's kind of been a cross section and and it's a, a little bit of a cycle in that some of my fan work has gotten me professional work with with either the composer of the thing that I was a fan of or or here, you know, word of mouth, things like that. I've gotten some work that way as well. So that's an interesting thing that you mentioned there of uh not one not wanting to treat the original work like it's you know completely precious thing that just can't be touched um mm-hmm. is that a is that a temptation like if you have a high esteem for a piece of music to just kind of reproduce instead of bringing something to it yourself no not at all really uh cuz in my mind it already exists in that form mm. while i don't want to maybe change it so far that it's unrecognizable or it no longer has any bearing on the original, unless that's a fun exercise or the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I usually tend to try to relieve myself of the stress of of it being too perfect or or the way it is, and just go 
with what I might try to bring to it and how I could change it and in a way that the people that have heard the same in-game version over and over and over again would be interested in hearing something new. So you mentioned also that you've been uh, working with the uh, Materia Collective. Mm -hmm. Um, We've spoken to uh, at least one or two other members from the uh, Materia Collective in the past, and um, it's always really, really interesting to get people's perspective on um, these fun uh, communities that emerge around just talented folks getting together and doing what they love. Yeah. Um, Do you have any idea, like, how many people are in that community, like how tight knit a group it is, or if it is just kind of a, kind of a loose collection. And I know that Materia Collective isn't even the only one on the internet. There's, there's many great communities all doing uh, awesome work sometimes in different, um, different styles than others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of, of communities that maybe based on the style, the style of music or the type of music or when they came about, I know like OC Remix has been around forever in my mind and uh mm-hmm. materia is is a few years old at this point but um i think that as the i think there are hundreds of people in the group uh, i know that there are hundreds of people in the group but i would say the connection seems to vary i know people that i, I had the fortunate experience to be invited to the first album i've been able to meet people since pretty much day one as the uh group expands i don't meet every single person or know every single person but i do get random connections to certain people for various reasons and so i would say i know a lot of the original people in some capacity and and i've met others uh over time at things like magfest where people will sometimes meet up and and hang out Mm -hmm. and uh it's great to put a face to a name or to have somebody's profile picture come to life essentially but yeah, I, I definitely don't know everybody. I know I know a handful, and I'm also fairly uh, reclusive on the internet. I'm like a wild <laughs> Pokemon in some form, and uh, so I don't really I don't really like show my head too much either. And then when I'm in public, you know, people I'll, I'll chat with a few people, and and I've I've made some great friends uh, through projects in that in that group. So I'm very grateful. Have you gotten the sense that the scene, um, both within the Materia Collective and kind of in the wider um, internet remixing and cover community um, has developed or evolved in ways since you've joined that you've been able to kind of witness over time? I would say, yeah, for sure. Um, it's the group of musicians has grown. So a lot more people have been empowered to be involved. And with that, the audience has grown. Of course, you, I've gotten to see it go from a fledgling to something that has some sort of uh, I don't know if it's notoriety, but people are are able to recognize it and have heard of it, like yourself at least, um, for whatever mm-hmm. that's worth. So it's been interesting <laughs> to see that happen. Um, and it does seem like the there's always people that are going to be remixing and arranging and uh, creating their own twists on music they love, whether that be video game music or otherwise. And the internet facilitates that in its own ways. But um, I think what's cool about the group is being able to collect. <laughs> no pun, uh, a bunch of mm-hmm. these projects together and release it into a, into a physical thing mm, or right. an album and, and do that in a way that, that they can actually put it up on iTunes and, and all the different storefronts and it exists and it's licensed. And, and that's sort of, I don't know if that aspect of it as is as common as just being able to go and, and put some, like I can put something up on YouTube, but I wouldn't really know the first thing about getting it licensed properly. Mm. Um, so those, it's really great when there are people or 
uh, companies or groups that know how to do that or have those connections and or are passionate about that and and want to do that correctly and make sure that everything is represented properly. Have you noticed any kind of stylistic shifts come and go? Um, like I know that uh, a lot of early, early like overclocked remix um, music has a very particular sound that I tend to associate with like late 90s, early 2000s, like rave EDM dance type of music. Um, and then, you know, as things have been evolving, you're starting to see more of like uh, symphonic and piano led and, and some more kind of jazzy type of stuff. But, um, you know, that's, that's me not necessarily deeply embedded in the community. So I'm interested in your take on like if style and trends have been kind of coming in and out in the time that you've been a part of these communities. I would say, I would say, yeah, uh, yes. And I don't know if I'm the best gauge of that because I, how much do I even really know about all of the different people that are out mm. there making things? But I would say with the improvement of maybe sample libraries, there are more opportunities mm, for people right. to create convincing cinematic sounds where they may have wanted to growing up or at a younger period of time, but maybe not be able to afford the libraries that existed. Because I remember when then you could buy like East West and it would be like $800. And if you're 16, you can't afford that. But Nowadays, yeah. there are a lot more accessible ways of doing that or even free tools that are provided that people can use to make music happen and that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do even. And then I would say like the the I would see more of the prevalence in live recordings based on the ability to record at home hmm. and in a quality that works for a more professional album. People like Carlos and Sane in the Rain Music who can just like mm -hmm. record the entire jazz band in his college dorm or wherever he does that and <laughs> it sounds great and he's doing it all himself i i think the point there is that it has expanded just based on people's tool sets becoming more flexible and being able to get their ideas out better that's exciting um so it sounds like you know with with more tools obviously people are able to do more um do you find yourself still kind of pushing up against the borders of things do you see like a maybe ways that the technology or ways that the community can evolve that uh that you're still kind of waiting on i don't know it's tricky because i find i think that it the the way that i would see maybe things needing to evolve i would then replace my answer with it's probably just that i haven't found the audience because in my mind i appreciate a very specific niche sort of subset of video game music the you know highly narrative ex experimental orchestral mm -hmm. style long form things like that and i know that that's a limited audience and that not everyone wants to hear that but i also it also makes me feel like oh if i'm gonna make something i i want to make something like that but who will listen to it I think the one the one that seems to be still pretty tough to do is that you can record people remotely and you can work with people from all over the world, but you don't really get that jam session vibe any, anywhere in that. And I think that that would be really cool to be able to feel like you're really collaborating with somebody in another room in that way that that's I don't think that's something that's really been done well and, and if it has i'm just totally unaware of it and that's po that's probably also very reasonable that's interesting is that due to primarily i guess um like streaming lag yeah in, like uh, latency things are usually yeah, a big right. part of it absolutely i i don't i i'm sure there's another sort of like an energy factor as, as far as like feeding off of the person in the mm, room right um but that also may be a latency thing because i mean we play video games online and we can we can race mm -hmm. and fight against each other and it's all 
apparently instant. I don't know how that happens, but the magic of, of video gaming could be beneficial yeah, exactly. in the world of music as well. It would be really cool. Hmm. I know you can remotely record an orchestra and, and tune in on the internet and and watch and make comments, but it'd be a whole different experience if each player were in their own studio room and playing at the same time. It reminds me of yeah, some absolutely. like early days of, I feel like maybe Eric Whitaker or Christopher Tin did something on YouTube where they, they tried to essentially do that and put up a video of them conducting their track and then everyone would record their own part to that and they compiled mm-hmm. it into a big thing but even that wasn't live and and immediate so that would be a, right that would be definitely an area that i i would see uh, curious to see how that improves or or changes the way that musicians interact yeah definitely i know that the, the groups that are able to pull that kind of thing off like the super soul bros are all local to each other and so they do yeah. just all get into one room and record that way yeah absolutely uh, when they're live streaming and stuff like that but um yeah otherwise uh like um insane of the rain music like we mentioned earlier and a lot of the other uh composers that um that do this kind of collaborative work will uh, just kind of, you know, each record separately. They'll have a metronome, they'll have their their piece of music written out. And if there's any soloing that needs to happen, they'll just count out the certain number of measures. But that is a lot different than, you know, going down to the coffee shop and jamming with people that are actually there. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the, the opening track that we played, the Antipyretic, uh, was recorded that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that track was recorded the same exact way. I sent everybody sheet music and a click track and they all recorded their parts and I put it all together. That's cool. Are there any um, any challenges with that approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of the time, uh, phrasing isn't something that you can really s- mm. talk about because in a normal studio, uh, studio session or with a group of musicians, you can talk about how you want the material to flow or who should play a little louder or a little quieter based on the way that the, it sounds in the moment in the room. And uh, even if you have, let's say, a bunch of different string players playing a section together, getting them to play the phrasing similarly is not really something you get uh, unless you plan for it. And you I don't I don't know, you could probably provide a guide for, from one of them, but that'll also take additional steps in planning. But yeah, most of the time you kind of just have to hope that everyone played it around the same way or that you can mm, mix it right. together and and edit it a way that will achieve that. If you are um, arranging and orchestrating something, do you ever get any feedback from people that uh, like I don't, I don't know what your what your kind of home instrument is mm-hmm. uh, obviously there's uh there's some keys work on here mm-hmm. is that the your primary talent is uh is working the keys yeah i've played i've played piano for a long time um primarily by ears but but so my skill set is not really as high as the as like augustine for example who record mm. recorded undertale piano collections one and two and the disaster piece uh album as well disasters for piano um, along with like a bunch of other tracks for me, he recorded Stardew Valley as well, uh, piano collections. I play, I played viola as well throughout, uh, grade school into college. So I have a pretty strong familiarity with strings and piano. Um, okay. I've learned about winds and brass and percussion as I've gone on and through studying and then getting feedback from people who are saying like, that's not quite possible or you can't write that high for that right that right. sound you know what i mean <laughs> that sort of stuff um what i'm happy to say is in in most cases the kind of feedback i get is is um is generally positive but i also very much welcome anything constructive because mm-hmm. it would be my nightmare to just continually do the wrong thing and nobody having ever told me that i could change yeah 
or to say like this, you know, this would make for an awesome key sequence, but it's very unnatural to play it this way on a wind instrument or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, when I do write for, for instruments that are not, if I'm playing it on the piano, but I'm not writing it for the piano, Mm -hmm. I do try to translate it in my mind so that I imagine that instrument playing it. And that usually works out pretty well. Um, fortunately so far, knock on wood. That's cool. Well, um, so you're of course bringing a few tracks that you've, um, that you've arranged, uh, some covers from pieces from all sorts of different types of video games. Uh, you're also bringing, uh, some pieces that, uh, other people within the community have arranged, including this next piece. Uh, why don't you introduce this, this next Chrono Trigger cover? Oh yeah. This is the, uh, opening and main theme from Chrono Trigger as arranged by the Hit Points, which are a fantastic bluegrass band based out of Nashville. Uh, some of my friends there and I just absolutely love the way that they've reinterpreted the main theme from my actual favorite game ever. It's one of my favorite things with covers is when the style is just so completely changed. Um, because as you said, the original piece continues to exist. And I mean, you know, it is immensely gratifying to hear like a lush orchestral version of a piece that we've only been able to hear as like a chip tune previously. Like there's really kind of a, a magical thing, but it's also like really kind of clever and devilishly unique in its own way when somebody just completely changes the style and does something entirely different with it. So oh, exactly. A lot of fun. Yeah. Let's listen agreed. to this piece. This is called uh, Presentiment. Chrono Trigger by The Hit Points, originally composed by Yasunori Mitsuda from Chrono Trigger.
Uh, so this uh, remixing community has kind of elevated the work of some people who were otherwise, you know, just kind of composing just for fun and um, doing it just for the sake of the uh, sheer enjoyment and, and giving people like real long running careers, making them into uh, household names in a way. Is that kind of a, a, a newer thing or is that something that's been a part of the community from the beginning? Absolutely. Um from I, I've kind of hinted at my own experience of that, but I would say growing up, I was also aware of uh, remixers, cover artists, uh, arrangers, saw their names pop up repeatedly in in tracks that I found that I enjoyed. And I hope that that continues. I think that it, it does. It seems like the community does sort of latch on to people that you can tell they have a strong passion for the work and they have a way to get their ideas out clearly and efficiently in some fashion. And I, yeah, I do hope that it continues to sort of feed itself and allow that community to continue to expand and uh, just to to appreciate video game music for everything that it is uh, for each uh, each person can find something different about it which I think is really great so I can uh, only speaking from my own very limited personal experience here um, I think that there was for me at least kind of a turning point in which I started kind of caring more about the individuals who were doing the remixes mm -hmm. uh, back when I like first discovered overclocked remix, like years and years and you like back in middle school or high school or something. Yeah. I, I just kind of downloaded all the tracks and set the artist name to overclocked remix because it fit nicely in my iPod. I could just have them all in one place and that was convenient for me. But, you know, I think once I started seeing the names like uh, big giant circles and, um, you know, Danny Baranowski and all these like names that were kind of familiar from that community pop up on game soundtracks. Then I started, you know, let's, uh, let's go back to the music and actually tag them properly and, and get more, uh, kind of name familiarity with the, the people that, um, that produce this. Yeah, absolutely. What are the, um, kind of favorite arrangements that you've put together? I assume that some of them are represented here today, but if there are any that uh, have kind of a special special place in your collection, yeah, there I, a few of them are included here for that uh, for that reason. I wanted to show off. I, I guess I just I wanted to show off. I, I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I, I think so. A lot of the ones when I think about it are, I would say maybe milestones. So, for example, disasters for piano was really important to me um, because it was the f it was technically the first uh, piano album that I did, even though it came out after Undertale, but um, Dis Disaster Piece, uh, Rich Reeland and I w worked on the arrangements back in about, I think, 2014, 2015. So that was really exciting. And and that project, uh, there's a story behind it where on the uh, on the album page, they talk about uh, Rich found uh, an Instagram video that I put up playing a song from Fez on the piano and reached out to me and asked if I wanted to work on piano arrangements with him which ended up being disastrous wow. for piano. So that was, that was a milestone for a few different reasons in that respect. Um, mm -hmm. And then Undertale Piano Collections was really, really fun to work on. And that was an example of me getting into this world of official piano collections, which it, as you, you'll see at some point that I really uh, I resonated with the piano collections of Final Fantasy um, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, growing up especially so getting to do an official piano collections album and, mm. and sheet music book was really special as well and then probably the most recent one would be the ori and the blind forest arrangement uh, which comes up later but um was performed by 
WDR Orchestra in Germany, who I had known for doing the symphonic fantasies, symphonic odysseys, Mm -hmm. as I kind of mentioned earlier, long form narrative structured uh, arrangements for orchestra. Um, So getting a chance to actually work with that ensemble and create an arrangement for that group and to hear it performed live with them was very special and uh, very meaningful. So those are some of the definite highlights. Um, Otherwise, I really have fun trying to experiment and uh, come up with new ideas and play around and and sort of meet new people and new musicians through getting a chance to work with them. So everything I, I try to bring something new to everything and sometimes it's success is varied. But yeah, those are those are a few examples of, of proud moments. That's cool. I always really appreciate when I, uh, talk to artists, um, we're, we're all improving because we're all just, you know, we're practicing these things all the time. And so we're always improving, but the improvement is oftentimes so gradual that it's really hard to, to be able to notice, um, day to day, track to track the improvements that are being made. Uh, and so I always like when people kind of phrase it as, you know, this was the the landmark at which I realized I could do this. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's not something I could ever do before, but now I can suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if, uh, if this works the same way for you, but I, mm-hmm. it's also a sign of growth when I look back on something and see maybe a completely different way that I would handle mm-hmm. it now right. um, than I would then. And that's usually a sign for me. Oh, I've, yes, I've changed or, or expanded my knowledge or leveled up or whatever nerdy term you want to use. <laughs> Are you pretty good at still accepting your old works though and listening to those or is everything beyond like six months? Like, I just don't want to hear it anymore. It's so embarrassing. I was so bad back then. You know, I, I get I that way sometimes that. about my own work. I can't, I can't <laughs> help but feel that I'm fairly self-deprecating with my work throughout the entire mm. process, which I think is kind of helpful when it comes to making sure that it is as good as I can make it or mm-hmm. represents the idea that I want it to represent. I try to be kind to my past works and trust that in the moment, like, somebody else believed in me to get it done and do the thing. So if that's the way that they felt back then, I have to just sort of accept it as it is. Cause I know I'm not going to be able to change it. So I'm not making a final fantasy seven remake or anything. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, I think it's uh, still yet to be seen whether square is actually doing it either. That's um, true. It might be some, a while before it comes out. That's some nice video demos. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty excited. Ah, uh, anyways, let's, um, let's get to this next piece of music. Uh, you had highlighted earlier, some of the uh, Undertale work that you've done. Um, this is a a cover of a piece from Undertale, a very uh, familiar piece to people who've played the game. Um, why don't you kind of take us through uh, through this track and some of its history and, and um, the process of creating it? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is going to be Ruins from Undertale Piano Collections Volume 2. Returning to the material of Undertale after doing 15 tracks for the first uh, volume was both very exciting and a little bit daunting because we kind of went into the first one trying to cover as many of the bases as we could. And then going into the second volume, wanting to make sure that we don't retread too much. So it was really cool to get a chance to cover some of the themes that we missed the first time or uh, didn't get a chance to. So the project itself was really fun to do and, uh, and stressful and exciting. And this, this track is, yeah, this is ruins and from undertale piano collections too. Thank you. 
Uh, so I want to learn a little bit about the the process of arranging existing pieces of music. Um, yeah, I'd imagine the challenge for people who are inexperienced with that would be you have a very good piece of music already. You know, how do you kind of like reverse engineer different ideas into it? Like, where do you where do you start? Do you start with the the score as is written and try to make changes from there, or do you just try to like strip out the core ideas and rebuild the structure from the ground up? Like how does the arrangement come to be? Yeah, for me, it's definitely more of option B in, and I will, I'll tend to usually create a template for the basic structure of the song. It's very, it's been very helpful. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, I did grow up learning how to play piano by ear and I learned how to play tons of music by ear at an early age. So I have a fairly strong understanding of how to accurately take down music. So I'll usually do that. I'll, I'll go and I'll listen to the piece and I'll just take down the melody and chords and other exciting pieces of it and, and go from there and try not to use any of the original score at all, because then I, it, it, I find it harder to change the minute details of a larger picture than it is to just take the underlining foundation and uh, create something new on top of that. I'd imagine, and uh, again, coming from a place of inexperience in doing this type of work, um, that creating something uh, that is um, based on a more, uh, I don't know if I want to say fully featured uh, piece of music, like uh, like a Uematsu track that is that feels like a, like an orchestral piece would be more difficult than... Um, than trying to kind of iterate upon uh, something that's more kind of bite-sized and tune-driven, like you would have uh, gotten uh, like a good, you know, Koji Kondo tune on the NES or something like that. But I might be uh, speaking nonsense here. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you're wrong there. I think it's just. Um, it's just about. In one hand, on one hand, I would say that the more options you have to work with is always better. You always have a chance to reincorporate some of those things, and and fans will love that if you can call a very specific portion of a song that might not be the melody and, and the harmony and the bass or whatever. When you have less there, you do get more options for creativity. So on, on something that's like four channels for Game Boy and Nintendo, yeah, you have plenty of, of room to expand upon that. Whereas something that's fully orchestrated you kind of do have to think harder about what you're changing and how to change it in a way that's interesting and deliberate and why, and if it's worth it even at all. Yeah. And I imagine as well, um, maybe just due to the uh, simplicity due to the uh, necessitated by the technology of those early chiptune types of uh, pieces of music, um, you know, oftentimes you can uh, you can have very few notes and it can be immediately recognizable. Any of the um, early Mario tracks, you can oh, play yeah. probably three or four notes and people would immediately kind of lock on to what it is versus something like a uh, Final Fantasy VIII piece that um, might take, you know, a little bit longer, a, a few measures to really get the, the swing of like, oh, this is exactly what this is now. In, in a lot of those cases, you don't have, I would say the older tunes, you don't get the, the chance to just use texture or just a sound you have to use every every note you get economically yeah so i i don't know in both ways it's 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 always fun to just hear those notes played live it's really fun to hear like a uh, a band or like a string quartet just play 
like a Game Boy tune. But then it's also so much fun to take something that is fully realized and and really, if you can spend the time reworking it all the way, it, it's really cool to get a chance to play a tune that was for a full ensemble, but you got to rework it to be for another ensemble, um, a track coming up in a little bit. We have an arrangement from Xenogears, which was a fully realized track with string percussion mm-hmm woodwinds brass i'm trying to think of what else is involved in the original but uh having it reduced down to string quartet was its own challenge because you have to retain the elements that are recognizable Mm, a way to make it i would say in my mind i want to make it unique and and interesting for those that are are very familiar with the original and maybe don't just want to hear that played by string players um so that yeah you'll 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 get a chance to hear my interpretation of that uh, going forward but yeah it's every ensemble size or i guess every video game console will have its um, benefits and challenges when it comes to how much information you're given to rework yeah so you've uh, you, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, getting to work with this orchestra over in uh, in germany mm-hmm. and um how do you kind of come into a situation like that like that seems like a very exciting thing to be able to be a part of let's see i i did uh an arrangement from ori in the blind forest for string mm-hmm. quartet that the composer gareth coker heard and enjoyed and expressed interest in connecting with the arranger and so magfest maybe two or three years ago we met uh i approached him fairly nervously just to say hi uh my name is david peacock i arranged that uh suite and uh, we stayed in contact and kind of just built a professional relationship and uh i started i think pretty much that was one of our first projects uh that i was hired for um, so yeah, so he, he said that this orchestra in Germany is going to be performing, uh, a bunch of video game music and mine included. And I, I don't have time to do the arrangement. So I like <laughs> what you did with the string quartet. So would you please do this arrangement? Um, I'm definitely paraphrasing. He's more eloquent than that. <laughs> and I said, yes, of course. And even, even right there in the pitch, I saw the orchestra. So I was very excited from the bat, uh, right off the bat and very stressed out, uh, to make sure that it delivered um so there was a a list of of tracks that they required to be included and an approximate length guideline as far as how long it could be i think it was supposed to be seven minutes and it ended up being more like almost 10 and yeah and so i set to work trying to make uh, to find ways to make these tunes fit together and how to make it make sense and revisiting the game to make sure that i'm not missing any story beats and that i can uh, get it all down and achieve it and and then in my mind, I had these ideas for how I wanted the orchestra to sound that was different from the soundtrack. I wanted to create that experience that people that just know the game back uh, front to back or the score front to back, that they'll just listen to this and say, oh, I didn't, I've never heard that before. And mm-hmm. so I like to interweave other characters' themes over top of each other, which that wasn't always there in some cases. And fortunately with the Ori theme, it's very fun and pretty easy to 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 weave in and out of different areas. And um, a couple of other fun challenges with that ensemble were that they uh, had a choir, a full choir and uh, a brass section. And those didn't really exist in the original Ori score. So thinking about ways to use them was really fun. Um, and in that case, I leaned pretty hard into it. And there's a section that is 
nearly entire choir uh, a choir feature and uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of a section that's just the brass. I got to play around with some extended techniques and unusual instruments to mimic the sound of the storm. And uh, yeah, it was really, really exciting and fun and um, and uh, getting to hear it realized. And, and, I'm, and I'm really thrilled that they did that nice video recording of it and, uh, and everything so that I can revisit that moment forever. <laughs> yeah, I, that that was pretty much how that came about and uh it went well and uh and Gareth was pleased. That's extremely cool. Gareth is a very talented <laughs> very talented individual. Yeah, he is. I just love the the Ori in the Blind Forest score. Uh it's it is so lush and there's just so much texture to it. It's uh, Yeah, there really is. It's really awesome. Yeah, great music all around. Um let's uh let's get to another one of your pieces. Um this is a an arrangement of a piece from Xeno Gears that you did. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of this one. I love that it just kind of jumps right out the gate with a lot of really great bouncy energy and and sets the tone right from the beginning. Um, the uh, the recording is just super crisp. Like it's um, even among you know well recorded orchestral pieces, it's it's rare to hear something that sounds this crisp. So you know that that was a a major win there as well. Well, that's really cool. I had no part in the actual recording part of it. Uh, so uh, the, the quartet will be pleased to hear that, I'm sure. Yeah, well, um, why don't you take us into into this piece? What is this piece? Why does it stick out to you among the Xenogears score? And uh, and what did you do with it? Okay, so the story here is that Materia were putting together another uh, group album. And uh, this one was based on Xenogears. And Yasunori Mitsuda uh, sits at the top of my list of, of favorite composers. And uh, I wanted the opportunity to work on this project uh, as much as I could. And at uh, at some point, it looks like they they the goal with this album was one cover of every track on the soundtrack, and that was it. No retreads. What actually ended up happening was that uh, this was the last track that nobody, uh, for some reason or another, somebody couldn't cover, and they asked if we wanted to step in and do this one sort of last minute, Videri reached out and said, do you want to do this one? And I said, heck yes. And we uh, put together an arrangement quickly and I sent it off to them and they recorded it. This is the Yggdrasil, uh, also known as Wings. We had to give uh, each of our tracks special names. So Yggdrasil is the name of the ship in Xenogears that this tune is typically heard on. So this arrangement is uh, an idea in my mind of, I imagine maybe the the ship flying through the different various areas of the world and getting to hear the material as it shifts and changes emotions based on that.
so we are recording this right after E3. I know that it's going to be a few weeks before this is published, but, um, you know, just to give some behind the scenes visibility, this is E3 week that we are on mic doing this. And um, not only have we seen a strong showing from uh, Final Fantasy VII, we also saw peaking up for the first time in um, in what feels like it just decades forever yes <laughs> good old final fantasy 8 oh, back the orphans on square are back. enix's stage <laughs> so um this this next piece of music that you wanted to highlight is from final fantasy 8 or is a uh, a cover of a piece from final fantasy 8 um what is this this game mean to you i know it's a kind of controversial one in the final fantasy lineage and then uh this piece of music what is it that attracts you to that in particular uh, maybe one of the few people that enjoyed Final Fantasy VIII, but I also played it when it first came out. And so the hype was, I was totally on board with it. I was about, I don't know, 12 years old or something. So uh, uh, I was totally into it. I played it. Uh, I know it was a bit different with the the way that the magic system worked, but also the way that enemies adapted to your levels. So you could never really like level grind and just be way better than everything else. But of course, also, it has like a great uh, Nobuo Matsu score. It has the, I don't know if it's the first, but one of the first fully recorded live orchestral pieces of music with Liberi Fatale. I don't know how you prefer, mm, pronounce right. that with the opening theme and the ending theme uh, music. That was very exciting. And uh, yeah, so I uh, that game was pretty great. And then. I don't even remember when, but sometime after I came across the Final Fantasy VIII Piano Collection, which in order of release was the first one that this arranger, Shiro Hamaguchi, did. And he at the time was responsible for the arrangement and orchestration of the opening theme and ending theme, as long, along with Eyes on Me, the various versions of that, and then went on to do piano collections for eight, nine, seven. He did all the orchestration and arrangement for Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy X and XI. Basically, anytime there was live music, he was involved. And so when I was growing up, that was something I thought was really cool to do. Um, and uh, so this is from Final, uh, Final Fantasy VIII Piano Collections. It's one of my favorite tracks, and it, uh, it is, it's just beautiful. This is Find Your Way from Final Fantasy VIII.
And of course, as we mentioned, uh, the uh, the centerpiece for Square Enix at this year's E3 was their big Final Fantasy VII remake that has been in production for years and years and may never come. But you know, they've uh, they've got some new stuff to show off this year. They've got a uh, release date for the first of question mark parts. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting project. It's been, uh, it's been very strange watching it all unfold over the years and watching the, the proposition change and, um, and the, the style kind of evolve. Um, but, uh, they, they got to show off, um, Sephiroth and the new design that they have, um, given him. Um, this next piece of music has a strong link with that, uh, with that character, with that theme. Um, why don't you uh, take us into your history with um, with both Final Fantasy VII and this particular spinoff? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Final Fantasy VII, I remember playing the demo at a video game store, and the demo was essentially the same as I think the demo is now for E3, which is the first reactor, and just escaping that. And I remember being terrible at it because I didn't understand the way that you walk on that flat, the flat picture mm. as a 3D character. So I didn't make it out in time ever in that in that first demo. And so, yeah, so like everyone else, I was excited when they showed off the PlayStation 3 tech demo of the opening area and then equally as disappointed when they trolled everybody like I think the next year or something like that when they announced the port of Final Fantasy VII. And everyone thought it was going to be about the remake or something. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And then, of course, Advent, Advent Children was exciting at the time um, to see these characters in some sort of a fully realized CGI way with voices and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well it holds up now, but um, it was exciting. And uh, speaking on whether a piece is too precious or not to be creatively arranged, a lot of people, I feel like, consider One Winning Angel to be you know, the pinnacle of final boss themes. It has that epic choir. It has that really exciting uh, orchestral arrangement that pretty much has been around and reinterpreted over and over and over again. Also by Shiro Hamaguchi from the arranger of the piano collections. But it's largely been that same version since it was released way back in probably early 2000s. And until Crisis Core came along where arranger Kazuhiko Toyama rearranged One Wing Angel entirely and did such a cool job with it in this next track called The World's Enemy from Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII. I'm just kind of peripherally um, aware of the, the whole Crisis Core thing. I know that Final Fantasy VII had, I think, like two or three games that were kind of tangentially connected to its story. Um, why don't you kind of give some context as to Crisis Core and where that fits in the, the mythos? Uh, so Crisis Core, yeah, I think if there, there were a few, it's hard to kind of count the random, like there was definitely a cell phone game that I think only existed in Japan. Um, most people in North America would be aware of the Dirge of Cerberus game from PlayStation 2, which explored Vincent and his backstory. Mm -hmm. Crisis Core explores Zack and his backstory, kind of leading up until the moments that you see him and Cloud escaping from the Shinra mansion and in experimentation and things like that in the Final Fantasy VII proper. Um, but yeah, largely you control Zack in this game and you, you see his backstory in a 
there's a happy Zephyroth when he's just a normal ish guy as normal as you can be with you know full <laughs> yeah. head of gray hair and a giant sword and <laughs> very well adjusted individual. he's totally normal it's fine everything's fine <laughs> uh that's that's about all i remember of the backstory i know that the game was f- fine I, I i think i i think it was it hasn't been released anywhere else but it, it was fine the music uh, was you, my favorite part <laughs> do you feel like the music uh does anything with the you know, fact that this is a prequel that this is coming before a lot of the characters had their kind of defining character moments i guess they they do they do sort of like touch on Aerith's theme as like a a little more folksy sounding they do the opening bombing mission with an orchestra but it's a bit different they do this version of one wing angel that's totally different and then they have a really actually and then the ending credits is pretty great because it includes the shinra man uh, shinra company theme and battle theme as a fully realized orchestral track and um this that's probably the coolest part about it i don't know if there is a lot more my memory might be very hazy on the game but i know that they wrote a bunch of new material but it was a lot more electronic and sort of of that period of time around the advent children sound as well like drum machine loopy early 2000s sound the highlights for me were definitely the orchestral uh, recorded ones though well, and then what is it about uh, this particular, the world's enemy, as it's called in um, in this version, uh, that makes it stand out to you uh, versus the original, um, the version of the, the music, the one-winged angel? I would say aside from the actual choir part and maybe the general structure of the piece, every part of it has been redone. And so mm-hmm. right from the gate, when you first hear it, it doesn't sound anything like the original um, there are these really fun nods to parts and elements of the other uh, original track and the orchestral arrangement, but largely it does uh, a, a few different techniques that m- maybe don't get heard in this track, like artificial harmonics with strings and using anvils and things like that. It's really it's just really uh, fun. And then you sort of hear a bit of a hint. I feel like right at the end of the track of the original mm. or, or the original arrangement which is just fun. I, I always like those little nods to something where the fans will definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they don't feel like they have to, you know, to hang a big painting on it when they're just able to let it kind of sneak by. And if you catch yeah. it, you catch it. If you don't, it's no big deal. Yeah. It's there's something I, I don't remember where the quote comes from, but it's something about the general message is that you can respect um, your fans to catch these things that you would catch and not have to like mm, right. beat them over the head with it. So subtle nuances and and, and uh, hints are very welcome. Well, let's listen to this. The World's Enemy from Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII. <laughs>
So getting into this next piece of music, uh, one of the things that really intrigued me about this was that it's um, different from from the general like genre and style of the rest of the music that's um, that's been included. You have uh, spoken already about um, getting involved with uh, Disaster Piece and some of the the projects that um, you've uh, collaborated on, um, but I'm yeah I'm I'm very curious. You know, you seem to be very comfortable in the the JRPG space. That seems to be what really interests you. But what other genres have you composed in, and uh, what is the kind of farthest that you've strained from the JRPG path? <laughs> I know that Disaster Pieces is, is known for that sort of synth sound. I, I know mm-hmm. he's gotten to do a lot of other things, but of course, Fez is very synth heavy, um, mm-hmm. along with Hyperlight Drifter, which I've done arrangements for him of from both so that that's one that i've gotten into doing of course i guess ori in the blind forest is not a jrpg mm, right so that's cool it's somewhat similar style though i think musically oh, yeah, for it's sure. not a million miles off no not at all um i'm just trying to give myself some credit here but it's not really working <laughs> yeah and i guess undertale is very much a basically a jrpg mm. i think it's, it's music has a good sense of humor to it it has mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of like almost a looney tunes type of feel every once in a while and so stylistically i think that one deviates from what we hear in a lot of jrpgs for sure it also feels very much like a like a nod to just super nintendo in general i find yeah, like yeah. certain tracks sound very much like they were made with the sounds of earthbound or chrono trigger mm-hmm. or Mega Man or final fantasy 5 or 6 
mm-hmm. I guess the farthest I've gotten was that I got I once got to arrange a piece of music by Britney Spears to oh, be performed by a uh, violist drag impersonator. Hmm. That would be the farthest from a JRPG that I would say I've gotten. That sounds like an interesting story. Like, oh, how it did was. that come about? So um, the, I was I, I through one of my video game music collaborator friends, I was hired to arrange Toxic by Britney oh, Spears yeah, yeah. in the style of uh, let me see if I can remember like a rena- it was it was Britney Spears Toxic through the years. So it was oh, supposed okay. to be like a, started off in a renaissance period and then it went into like an early jazz, uh, like a 20s, 30s jazz style. And then it went through the disco era and then straight into the the version that we all know. So that was pretty actually a very fun, uh, a fun challenge. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't actually heard the final track now that I'm talking about it now. So I don't know if there's ever anywhere that we can hear it, but that was not a JRPG. Yeah, that's uh, that's about as far as you can get, I would imagine. Yeah, I do really like uh, I, like film scores. Also, are a, a passion of mine. So I like to arrange and just dabble in in taking film scores and reinterpreting them with the same tool set that I would with video game music. So I've occasionally dabbled in like playing the nightmare before Christmas on piano and, and changing that up a bit. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we're just being a little, a uh, little cheeky. We speak about Japanese RPG scores as if it is one thing, like every composer brings such different things to the table oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, each game, each project is, uh, wildly different from one to the next. So we didn't want to just gloss over like, um, like it's just a singular genre. <laughs> no, absolutely. There are so many different styles that, that a JRPG could encompass, which is actually kind of the best part of it. I feel like a lot of mm-hmm. my early introduction to different styles of music was through JRPG. I remember when Chrono Cross came out, I got an I got like a crash course in all these different Irish instruments and the sound sets that yeah the, yeah that Yasunori Matsuda wanted to use for that. Uh, I kept reading in the liner notes or some translation about these different instruments that he used, and then primitive early days of the internet and looking them up and seeing what I could find. Um, so yeah, it's pretty great. I think that the diversity that's allowed for in games in general is is really fun for education. Even within a series, you know, the Final Fantasy series has gone from uh, from classical operas and Final Fantasy VI to kick-ass punk rock pieces and and thirteen two and you know it's mm-hmm. just great, just kind of all around. <laughs> or like full-on J-pop in in ten two. Yeah, yeah, they exactly. Just, uh, they don't shy away from really anything at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're getting into a piece that is from a puzzle platformer from Fez, as you'd mentioned before, um, very different style of music. Um, I think of disaster piece of stuff as being a very kind of ethereal and, and minimalist in its own way. Um, obviously there's a lot of, of really kind of smart, intricate stuff that, uh, that is working almost behind the scenes in the music in ways that it almost, almost defies detection to casual listening. And that's what, and it gives it its, uh, texture and, and makes it more interesting. But, uh, you know, overall, I would say it's a very different style than than uh, the more kind of intricately composed Final Fantasy uh, pieces. Um, how is this a different kind of challenge and task in composing than uh, some of the other pieces that you've done in the past? So for Fez, Fez music and and with um, Disaster Piece music in general, the harmonic language is so strong and interesting. Mm. I find it, that's one of those things where I really want to capture as much of that as I can in certain instances and, and then see where I can play around with that 
in others. And so for this track, I remember approaching the opening, the opening section of the track already. I think the first maybe half of it in the original is this sort of meandering improv noodling thing going on. So I sort of played the telephone game with it and noodled based on the noodles that were happening already. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when it goes into the the track proper, I sort of play around with different harmonic ideas. And um, I think that at some point I also was reading about Fibonacci or the golden rule. And I ended up trying to phrase the amount of measures based on that, um, which just gave me a, a structure to start with and, and a little bit of a guideline, uh, which can be fun when you're feeling stuck to just put a constraint on the project, just to give you a guideline to work within. I think I broke it a little bit, but yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed how this track turned out. And it's one of those, I would say rare occasions where didn't take very long to be written so much to the point that I can enjoy it now without thinking back on stress or or getting stuck or reworking too much, things like that. Uh, this one really kind of just came out and happened and was just about finished uh, after it was started. So um, I hope I'm using the appropriate language here, but um, one of the things that really stands out to me about Disaster Pieces Fez soundtrack is how much it leans into the kind of artificiality of the music and uh and plays with a lot of like cool glitchy aspects Mm -hmm. uh there's a lot of uh, it kind of feels like it's coming from a broken machine um, which obviously plays into the um the story and a lot of the presentation of the uh the visual aspects of the game as well um is that something that is difficult to translate into natural analog instruments since it is so kind of intrinsically musically linked to um to to kind of computerized aesthetic you know i i don't think so but that also could just be because of the tracks that were chosen Mm, right because from fez the uh from fez for the album we ended up doing uh nature death and forgotten Mm. which are all Fairly straightforward as far as tracks go. They're not the glitchiest ones on the soundtrack, Mm -hmm. but I'm also stubborn. So if I had chosen one that was glitchy, I would figure out a way to make it work well. (laughs) That that would be my uh, goal. But in this case, no, um, there it was pretty it was pretty organic. The track itself, maybe that was based on the material it was going for. But it also the album itself got a lot of fun reworking and um, post-production sound effect stuff that uh mm. that i didn't uh add to it that was added after the fact that made it really interesting and unique uh you can hear it especially on on uh, on other tracks more than you hear it on nature but nature if you listen very carefully has some sound effects in the background and maybe a little bit of a fuzziness to it that uh fez had as well very cool well let's get into this this is nature from uh from fez
So we are taking uh, what is both a uh, kind of similar and very different uh, approach with this next piece of music. Um, again, we're moving into something that's kind of minimalist and ethereal in its own particular way, but uh, also this one, let's say there's lots of layers of instruments and sounds and, and weird little gross noises that all come together mm -hmm. to make the most beautiful. I love the, uh, all the scores by Amanita design um, from their games. It's uh, and I think Samaros three um, pretty much sits on top. And uh, I just love, you know, the, the visual style of the game and the music complement each other. So beautifully, you know, there's so much, both beauty and kind of grotesquerie in in both that work in harmony so well together in the same way that you would see the two intermingling in nature. Uh, so yeah. I'm I'm very curious as a musician. You know, this is a very non traditionally musical piece of music. I mean, maybe this piece more than a lot of the other stuff on the rest of the album. But like, how does this kind of thing read to you? My experience with the music was that I was really intrigued by, as you said, the layering and the the ambience and just the sounds and the world that it was building. Mm. And then kind of what really drove that home was just how beautiful and smooth and warm the clarinet sound is that uh, the composer Floex performs himself. I thought that was really cool. And I, I learned that he likes to write on clarinet, apparently, whatever the internet says. Um, so these layers and layers of different clarinet lines over and over again and um, mixing with all these sound design background elements just really intrigued me. And perhaps it's uh, my lack of clarinet abilities entirely. I'm, I'm not a wind player <laughs> at all, but I just, yeah, I was really drawn to this, this album and this track especially. And, um, I've been a fan of his work now ever since. And it all, it never disappoints. It always has a really great energy and vibe and it always makes you really want to listen carefully for all the details and, and not to miss any, any part of it. So just out of curiosity, just as an experiment, if you were going to create a cover or an arrangement of a piece like this that is so wildly non-traditional like where would you start what would be your thought process as you listen to it oh that, that's a good that's a good um i don't know what you call it experiment or thought a question i would listen through it and i probably what i usually end up doing is i play the track on loop over and over and over again until it's really ingrained in my head and i would probably sit at the piano and play the track or play along with it and see what I naturally want to do to complement it and then mm, how right. I can incorporate elements of the track that will make it recognizable for the uh, listener. And then at some point I usually uh, just grow to some sheet music paper and a pencil and write out the song form and uh, general structure, anything that specifically stands out that I want to recreate or emulate or otherwise interpret and, and, uh, and go from there. And and then usually at some point you kind of go through it and you can gauge whether or not it's, it's going to work or not. And, um, in the cases where it's harder to just straight replicate any of the sounds, if it's that hard to form a recognizable idea based on that kind of leaves you more room to be experimental and, and take the motifs and melodies and recompose it in a way. 
is would you prioritize uh, finding ways to use like if this is a piano cover to use the piano in creative ways to like kind of reproduce some of the texture as well? I think, it, yeah, it depends, because if it was meant to be played live, then I'd want to make sure that that's still possible. Mm-hmm. But if I was going to approach it kind of the same way that I imagine he approached it, where I got to record layer on layer on layer, mm-hmm. then I would absolutely go full on extended techniques and like you know, if I was if I was really going to record it in a studio, maybe like however way, whatever way I can like bow the string mm, and, right. or pluck things and, and just go ham at that whole thing. <laughs> um, that would be really fun just to see how much of the track could be replicated on a piano using, you know, banging on the piano or throwing coins in it and hitting. Yeah strings plucking dampening you can make a lot of fun sounds with a piano and it would be really interesting to try it out i imagine it would be unless you have a buddy who just owns a studio it might be kind of expensive to just book so much time to figure that out but either way it would be really really a fun way to try like anything like that it's a very fun challenge yeah so this is the samaros 3 main theme composed by floex and uh while it is a a uh, kind of longer ethereal track, something that's just kind of nice to to mellow out to and, and let wash over you. Uh, I'd like to um, challenge people to think about it from a musical perspective as well and just kind of keep in mind like what a what a crazy undertaking it is to try to put together a piece of music that sounds equally like a a pleasing and interesting and memorable piece of music and something that could spontaneously emerge from nature. Uh, just all the noises in the forest coming together. <laughs> so, Samaros 3. Thank you. 
have one more track to listen to, but before we do that, uh, we wanted to uh, remind everyone to go over to the forum at canonrinse.com forum. You can request your own favorite pieces of music and we'll play them on future shows. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at canonrinse. Uh, we have some other podcasts on the network. Canonrinse releases on Mondays. That is our video games review podcast. We have Playwright on Thursdays. I know that it's a little old at this point, but as of the time of recording, uh, just today, we released our big E3 special that is Playwright number 104, where we have a lot of fun pretending like we're hosting a, a big, crazy E3 conference and pitching our own random, weird, silly games uh, to a uh, to an audience that is uh, fully and entirely real, we promise, fingers crossed. So if, if you're going to start anywhere, uh, start your playwright journey anywhere, uh, episode 104 is a very fun place to do it. And then, of course, we release the Sausage Factories on Friday. Sorry, just one factory, the Sausage Factory. <laughs> Maybe we'll expand. Maybe we'll have multiple Sausage Factories. But uh, for now, for now, it is just uh, just one good old Chris O'Regan holding it down and uh, interviewing game developers. That comes out every Friday. So lots of stuff to look forward to there. Uh, you can find Ken and Rinse on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and uh, Patreon as well. Lots of places to get involved in the Ken and Rinse world. Um, I wanted to, again, thank my my guest, David Peacock. Uh, would you like to um, plug any of your own work and uh, let people know where they can find your stuff? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, let's see. Well, you could find me at David D. Peacock pretty much everywhere. I use Instagram sparingly but occasionally i'll play piano on there and you never know when that might turn into a whole project um i have a youtube channel where i sometimes will post scores or re reduced scores of my work just so that people can have an idea of the inner workings of the the music i also have a, a strong affinity for engraving and polishing sheet music so that sort of plays in there hmm. um on that same in that same vein uh kind of the more recent projects that i've had would be uh, the Undertale Complete Piano Score, which is where I transcribed all 101 tracks from Undertale and uh, engraved it for piano. Wow. That's on sale now uh, through Materia and uh, I think other places, but definitely check uh, Twitter for that as well. Uh, I was uh, thrilled to be invited to engrave the official Celeste Piano Collections book as well, um, and that's out. And... Uh, I have a bunch of stuff that's in the works, but it's all secret and hush hush. And I wish I could talk about it now, but maybe another time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this, it's interesting. So this engraving work, like how does that, uh, what is that within the context of, uh, of working in music? I have a very good idea of the, the word in other contexts. So in music with that, uh, that's a fancy term for when you're polishing up the sheet music for print in production. So mm. if you, there's always a level, uh, if you're working with live musicians or you're putting out sheet music, there's always a point in time when the score has to be proofread and you have to go through and make sure that it's readable and clear. And there's, it's usually kind of two distinctions. There's a copyist, which is like the short term uh, version of polishing the score where it's going to be played at a recording session and then probably not ever looked at again. So it needs to look clear and you need to be able to follow along easily, but it's not quite as important as engraving for something that's going to be sent to printing presses and sold as a book. So when it, for example, uh, all of the projects I've done, uh, Undertale Piano Collections 1 and 2, Disasters for Piano, 
I did engraving on those on those where I took the scores that I was working on for Augustine to play. And I had to go back and make sure that all the notes were one correct and that uh, everything is pleasing to look at and everything is in in like the right place. And there's a bunch of general guidelines as far as where text should go and how it should sit. And um, so that kind of strikes the visual part of my brain and and uh, making things look pleasing. And when you work in orchestration, you have to do a lot of that as well as preparing the parts for the musicians to play. So that it's great to be able to use that and and uh, as a skill set for other people's arrangements and and books and for my own. That's fantastic. Um, so while we are in plugs mode, I, I suppose we should uh, also kind of put out there: Are you currently looking for work? Because we occasionally get some uh, some video game industry folks listening to the pod, and uh, you know sometimes these connections are made. So you know yeah. if uh, if people are interested in in working with you in a more professional sense, like how can they do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much always looking for work. I'm never one to turn down an opportunity, especially when uh, it, it leads to more and more experiences and learning. Uh, I'm, I'm welcoming it. So yeah, people can reach out to me uh, either via the social media platform of their choice. I have a website, daviddpeacock.com. They can contact me at my email address, which is contact at daviddpeacock.com if they'd like. Um, I'd be happy to talk with anybody about arranging, orchestration, composition, um, engraving, whatever it might be, even just, uh, I don't know, if people have questions about how to do things, I'm happy to answer those as best as I can. Great, great. So, this last piece of music that we are going to be hearing today is, again, a, uh, a tremendous piece of music, something that uh, we've already kind of spoken uh, to in the process of how it came to be. Um, but this is a piece from Ori in the Blind Forest played beautifully by a, <laughs> a full uh, choir and orchestra, uh, which is exciting. It's actually a suite of music from the game. So it's, mm. it covers about, I think, seven to nine tracks from the opening to the ending and in, in between. Uh, so, you know, we've already told a, a bit about the story, but are there uh, other things that you want to say about this piece of music, about uh, the process of creating it or, or what it's like to hear it afterwards? I, I think it, it makes me feel feelings and that's about it, which I'm not a feelingsy person. <laughs> um, so I would say... The the group is just so good and they're so professional and they everyone did such a good job taking it seriously and doing it justice. And I got to speak with the conductor very briefly and he was so passionate about every aspect of it and talking and making sure that I seemed happy with it. And I don't know if that was real or just being nice, but I was so flattered to even have gotten any moment to chat with him. So the whole experience was really, uh, really one I'll never forget. That's great. Well, this is Ori and the Blind Forest, a uh, a really wonderful yeah version of it that uh, is performed live. Uh, there is a video online that we can point you to that uh, will give you some um, visual cues as well uh, as you listen with it. But uh, for the sake of the podcast, just kind of uh, sit back and let this music wash over you. Um, I would like to uh, thank again, uh, David, for coming on the show, and um, we'd like to thank all of you for listening. So with that, we'll close out, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>